Hello and welcome to episode number 314 of the Armin Show podcast, which covers a variety of topics. We're learning more. There's a community of sorts and neuroscience, law, economics. Subscribe if you have not. It's very important for me to inform about that. Now, on this episode, we have the author of a book who has done some research in a specific category for the book, Professor Emily Erickson of Yale University sociology department joins us she is the author of trade and nation how companies and politics reshaped economic thought emily welcome to the show thank you thank you it's nice to be here thanks for having me i'm glad to have you on now before we get into the book i tend to like to check on background that leads up to the book because a book is only a culmination of our thoughts and efforts after the fact of having a reason to do so or even getting into that field, what has led you to where you are today at Yale? Well, um, so this, can I, can I narrow that down to yes. this book, the publication? Yes, freedom okay. here. <laughs> uh, so um, I, I would say that it started probably when I was in uh, undergraduate. Um, I was uh, taking a course on history and structure and I was just, fascinated, completely bowled over by this book called The Islands of History by Marshall Sons, an anthropologist at the University of Chicago, um, or, or that was formerly at the University of Chicago. And that book is about um, Captain Cook and, and the Marshall Islands and this kind of like encounter between these two societies. And I thought it was so fascinating. You see structure and history kind of intermeshing in order to produce this huge transformation of both societies. And I, I wanted to do something like that, which sort of led me to sociology. Um, and it led me to uh, look, it, when I started sociology, it led me to look in um, the area of this sort of age of encounters. Uh, so I wanted to find data on these kinds of like, you know, where the Europe sending out ships and, and encountering new civilizations um, that they hadn't encountered before. Um, it directly, at least, you know, there's indirect trade routes and things like that, but not not as much with as much frequency or as directly. Uh, so I found this data on the English East India Company, and I ended up writing my dissertation on that. And I published a different book called um, called Between Trade and um, Between Free Trade and Monopoly about the English East India Company. Now I know that that's a little bit of a long way to get to this book, but one of the things that just really struck me is a really um, sort of a strange coincidence was that almost all of the early important economic tracks in the early modern era, you know, so 1600 to roughly 1750, everything kind of leading up to Adam Smith, all of the really important works were written by these men that were principals of the monopolies of the time, of the chartered companies. And uh, I thought, well, that is a really strange coincidence that almost everything happens to be written by these extremely powerful merchants. Uh, and it, it led me to think about um, what, why that was and, and what it meant for economic theory. And, and that was the origin of the idea that became this book, um, The Trade and Trade and Nation. I suppose you can't really see it. <laughs> that makes sense. Now, what, by the way, what are chartered companies? Oh, yeah. So chartered companies, chartered companies are really the first um, of the organizational form that we would come to think of now as companies. So before in the medieval era, there's things like guilds, there's partnerships, but there aren't um, companies in the sense where there's a shared pool of capital. 
So in the 17th century, um, chartered companies became, in England in particular, really sort of a, a popular way of organizing commerce and trade. Uh, and the companies are different because lots of people come together into an organized venture. Um, in the chartered companies in particular were given exclusive rights to different areas of trade. Uh, so for example, East India Company had exclusive rights to the East Indies, which was a term that was used to refer to pretty much all of Asia and Africa and the Middle East. Um, uh, other companies had uh, exclusive rights, other chartered companies had exclusive rights to things like white linen um, or the Baltic Sea area, uh, but they were large-scale ventures, often engaged in overseas trade with monopoly privileges granted by their company of origin. Hmm. Now, the East India Company you have looked at in heavy detail, why that company, would any other company have sufficed for this kind of analysis? Well, the English East India Company was a pretty remarkable company. So, um, so in the type of analysis in the book on trade and nation, all of the companies have an impact. So it is possible I could have looked at some other companies, the Merchant Adventures um, or, or um, uh, the Baltic Sea Company or uh, something like that. But the, the English East India Company was the most successful, I would say, of these ventures, commercially successful. It was it made an, a huge amount of money. And it was also extremely important because, so, so the people that were engaged in the English East India Company were probably more powerful and wealthier merchants. So that matters for the story. Um, but that company also, it, it ended up taking colonial control over uh, India, the Indian subcontinent. Um, and so it, it then became a kind of foundational stepping stone in the expansion of British imperialism overseas, which I think it was not a good thing at all, um, but certainly something that's important to understand how and, and why it happened at that time and what, what led up to it and how that's impacted the world. Um, since this makes sense now one thing i definitely liked is that you described the detail you went into to look at material from the 17th century and around that time which is good because sometimes we don't know what the analysis is that goes into how do we look back at the past we don't have the same tools as we have today things looked a little different then and we're not as electronically data-based can you go into some of the detail of the hefty effort you put into to pull out terms that were discussed at that time and what was relevant based on public discourse and whatnot? Yes. So, so, so the book um, is about the uh, shift in economic discourse that happened in the early modern era, you know, roughly um, 1600 to 1720. Uh, so the, um, what I wanted to capture was not just um, a change that happened in the most phenomenal works of the time, right? So there's always, you know, leading lights that are sort of innovative thinkers and then come up with transformational ideas, or there's even people that do things really different from what people have done before. And sometimes those people get sort of buried in history. Um, but there's an example of uh, this um, Spanish um, economic thinker, now, Sarah, 
who wrote this really incredible book that had a lot of the same insights as Adam Smith's work. Um, and he, but he wrote it about a century or more earlier, but he wrote it in prison. Uh, and it was in a little prison library chest buried under all of these other books for like another 200 years. So it's just an example of someone who's a genius, but it doesn't matter if you're a genius if other people aren't picking up the ideas and actually um, using them in order to inform the larger discourse. So what I wanted to do was to be um, more systematic and, and encompassing than previous works uh, of sort of the history of economic thought. And it's really not the fault of people that did the history of economic thought in the past that they couldn't be more systematic, that honestly, they didn't really have the same tools available to them. So if you're just one person with one pair of eyes and 24 hours in each day, there's only so many texts that you can read on your own. Um, so what I, and there's, there's only so many sort of pairwise analyses that you can engage in. So what I did was I took uh, what is now a, a sort of an amazing available and readily available online corpus of early economic works. Uh, and a lot of that is now text readable and that's through a terrific, um, a terrific project with early economic books online, the um, text creation partnership that if people are interested, they should definitely check out. Uh, so I took, uh, they, they, and they randomly sampled the early economic texts or they randomly sampled all texts. So that's really good for uh, getting away from selection bias and, and other problems, statistic, statistic problems, sampling problems. Uh, and so I took this, this corpus that they'd created uh, and I used topic modeling in order to pick out um, the most important themes that exist in, in the works. So, I mean, it's essentially a computer program that looks at patterns of, of association between words uh, uh, by like across chunks of text. Um, and I, it produces a number of different topics that are important to the authors of all of these works. And you can see how they kind of change over time and how they relate to each other and how some things become closer together over time and drift apart over time. And, um, and what was kind of revealed in this analysis was this significant shift away from kind of a moral evaluation, this kind of spiritual sort of way of thinking about economic behavior, you know, is this just and fair in the eyes of God, um, which was a sort of a medieval framework for thinking through economic problems. Um, towards one that was based in thinking about national wealth and prosperity. So now, as far as the change from a more moral discourse to a more uh, practical or numerical analysis that happened, can you tell us about the progression and why it occurred? Yes. Uh, so the progression, I, I mean, I would say it was, it was sort of a slow transformation, but that if you look at texts in the like 1550, famous texts in 1550, it's going to be fundamentally different in its sort of basic assumptions about what they're trying to accomplish and how they're trying to persuade their audience than something that's published in, say, 1650. But even earlier, 1620, um, you would really see texts that look like they're sort of from a different universe, almost, you know, like different solar systems, um, where in 1550s, um, money is often referred to, money is like evil, um, merchants are assumed to be evil, uh, and there's uh, a concern 
a lot of concern about fair exchange and, um, and equity and making sure that people aren't being taken advantage of because, because of the sort of um, moral hazards of just in, engaging in, in commerce and trying to make a profit off of relationships with other people. By 1650, there you lose the kind of assumptions that that trade is inherently evil, and instead it's actually being seen as something that it has a positive benefit for for the nation um, and for the community and the Commonwealth, as it was referred to in England, um, which is where this transformation took place. And uh, and the book is really about how and why that transformation occurred. And, and what I found was that it was um, something that I didn't really expect, but it, it was about a combination of the political circumstance of the kind of rising merchant class in England, um, coupled with the increase in, um, in their sort of organizational capacity and political power uh, and, and kind of controversy stirred up by the company of the company form, these, these chartered companies um, that were a new way of organizing commerce. So what happens is the companies give these merchants a lot of sort of increased um, power in the sense of organizational capacity and kind of power to affect the uh, economy. Um, but they're really controversial because they're monopolies and people are excluded from them. Uh, and, and so they cause a lot of discontent in society. And um, this, this controversy spills into the public sphere because merchants are sort of largely excluded from the offices of, of the government in England. So they want to, essentially the merchants want to affect trade policy. And trade policy then was essentially, you know, who are you gonna grant a monopoly to? And, and who are you gonna exclude from that monopoly? And the, that, that was a benefit to the state because then they would they would get um, money from the people that they grant the monopolies to. So, that, so these merchants, they wanna affect these trade policies, um, but they don't have direct access really to the government in order to sort of enact their policy preferences. So what they do um, is they write these texts in the public sphere trying to convince that uh, the, the representatives in parliament, the, the constituencies of, of those individuals in parliament, um, the Privy Council, the Crown, they're trying to convince them to do certain things about these monopolies. But no one trusts merchants. So this is kind of an interesting thing. No one trusts merchants then. So the merchants have to rely upon something other than the, the, their own sort of stature. So they use the principles of science, logic, and, and empirical data in order to buttress their arguments in that, so that they can convince people that they're just not making self-interested arguments that would let them make more money. But they really were. <laughs> but they really were. <laughs> in fact, they actually were. That's a, there's multiple points that come to mind as you're describing this. The strategic value of communication. Most of communication at some point had persuasive intent behind it. And then switching it to more logical and rational framework to make points, even though actually it was still trying to get something across. But okay, we'll switch it to over here. This is more convincing at this time. It's like a new level of competition and nobody trusts merchants. That's pretty good stuff right there. Right? <laughs> because what is the merchant trying to do? Maybe sell. And then maybe we'll use any method to sell. And then, so you have to be wary on the other end. 
that makes sense. What are some uh, key terms or um, phrases or descriptions that merchants would use or topics they would bring up that were relevant at the time? Is there any key terms or phrases that uh, showed up a lot in examining? Yeah, I mean, so trades increase, for example. Um, England's, England's treasure by foreign trade, uh, the, 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 I mean, to be honest, the wealth of the nations, right? The wealth of the nation, um, the title of Adam Smith, this is the wealth of the commonwealth, the commonwealth, the commonweal, the rest public, like the benefit of um, not not the people, right? Because they didn't actually conceive people as a sort of political force in exactly the same way. This is sort of emerging in that time, but they're talking about the, um, the wealth of the nation. Uh, and even earlier on, they're talking even more specifically about the wealth of the, um, the, the monarch, the, the queen, uh, when it was Queen Elizabeth, the king, when it's um, you know, the, the other series of, of monarchs that took over afterwards, it's, it's um, because that's considered the wealth of the crown is considered to be the same in a sense as the wealth of the nation. So they're using these terms and they are drawing upon these tropes in order to construct arguments that would appeal to the the politicians, essentially, the people that are in the parliament, um, the, uh, the nobility, uh, and the crown and um, the, the other sort of offices of the government. And this is why, because the, their audience, the, the, you know, they're trying to change trade policy. So their audience is essentially the government. And that's why they talk in these very nationalistic terms in order to capture the attention of these individuals and, and persuade them. Whereas the audience of the earlier medieval theologians is, is, is quite different. Now, this was a large effort to maybe maintain monopolies or build upon them. Is this a new level of competition? And did they basically outcompete anybody who was in the older framework, thus building a new system? Oh, yeah. So did the new economic authors sort of outcompete the kind of scholastic authors? In they I, they did. I mean, they kind of overwhelmed them. So the rate of texts written by um, by scholastics or, or by um, ecclesiastics about economic that touched on economic matters or were on economic matters, it doesn't change that much. But um, it, it, it says it's sort of a, a steady rate. But at the same time, this is the era of the printing press of the you know it, it's the era in which publishing becomes just like a huge business um, for the, so the rate at which all texts are being published published is really increasing a lot um, and the rate of people writing on economic texts also increases in England it doesn't like strangely it doesn't increase in um, in the Dutch Republic it doesn't increase in France it, you know it's, it's this English phenomenon but it grows and the number of merchant authors grows and it, it just, um, it grows enough that the proportion of texts that are kind of religious in nature shrinks to be a very small proportion of the overall. This makes me think of recently, I talked with somebody about meritocracy in the current time versus like the 1950s and how uh, there's a new type of uh, rich or wealthy that is very active and they have to be hardworking about what they're doing versus 60 years ago. They just had things and we own a lot and they didn't do much and it would be actually looked 
down upon to do a lot. So I notice how there's these trends where every 50 years, 100 years, whenever there's a new competitive framework that we do this. And if you're doing this, that's the old way. And it doesn't matter how much you built in that system, uh, that, that kind of uh, disappears. There's a dynamic ebb and flow that goes on in our society. Now, uh, as far as the merchants, what is what were some of the challenges they had getting their messages across? Well, I mean, I think probably the, the basic challenge was this problem of legitimacy that they had. And so, you know, the more successful authors then start to use um, the science, this idea of um, empiricism, which is developing at the time with Francis Bacon and the emergence of the Royal Society. So, um, although it's also true that there's a number of people that, that would say, and myself included, that these new merchant authors actually influenced Francis Bacon, um, and who was, you know, they influenced him to also think more about using empirics um, and, and data gathered from the world itself in order to buttress arguments. Because, I mean, just to say the difference is, is that before, and, and again, in the like so scholastic arguments, they weren't using trade statistics. No one talked about trade statistics or they were talking about, you know, Aristotle said this, or, you know, the Bible says this. And those are the key pieces of evidence that they use to support their arguments. These new merchant authors are, are doing something quite different. Um, but uh, so the, the difference, so I just lost the thread about it. What? Sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> Long live threads. And I lose the threads sometimes too. I want to put that out there for the listeners. It's, it's, it's good to be in the moment. And what is a challenge that the merchants had in getting their messages across? Difficulties maybe of legitimacy. Um, what did they have to deal with that was tough? Oh, yeah. Um, so, right, so I was talking about the solutions to that, which was um, these statistics, um, but the, the problem, I mean, it was, it was really uh, a, a lack of, of trust in, in the class of merchants so, uh, themselves. I mean, merchants, are, they're becoming more politically powerful. The, um, a larger proportion of, of people are gaining rights in England at this time, but it's, it's exactly what you mentioned with this sort of interesting situation that you, you're still looked down upon if you engage in work. <laughs> so, in a way, I mean, in the leisure class in the United States earlier, still managed to kind of retain um, some kind of moral superiority, I suppose, from, from not doing work. But, that, but it, it was really opposite at that time so much so actually my favorite example of it is there's um prince xavier the portuguese king the portuguese king and he had mm -hmm. an overseas chartered company that each the earlier but um the, that he sent to the east indies and that the other the other kings made fun of him and called him the grocer king because it was so beneath <laughs> beneath them to engage in in commerce um but so, so they had this problem uh, of being seen as lower class. They had this problem of being seen as uh, um, base, uh, only only interested in material materiality, um, not being the, the most honest of individuals. And that's exactly why they they reached out for these these other tools um, like like science, uh, trade statistics. And also they would they would just do other things like um, write under pseudonyms. 
uh, or or not even right under sometimes sometimes they would claim to be other people. Um, Josiah Child, who was a famous author of the time, wrote, and it's just amazing because the standards are so different, but he wrote in a preface that he did he that he was a completely disinterested individual that had no um, stake in the trade uh, that he was describing whatsoever when he was, you know, the principal, the sort of the, um, the <laughs> like the CEO of the company at the time. And the craziest thing about that, I swear, this is so- What's the craziest thing? The craziest thing is that that preface is included in a later version of the manuscript where he's acknowledged that he is the author. <laughs> so like you could read that as the author and then read this like second preface where he states that he has no interest in the business. Um, but, you know, I don't, they just, it just didn't quite like bother them exactly in the same way. I mean, I guess it did, but uh, who knows? I, I don't know how that happened or how people responded to it, but it seems amazing. Strategic moves in the background. <laughs> That's pretty good. These stories, by the way, are the key elements, the, the steps along the way or the little power play interactions between people. That's how I feel like society has little shifts. They have to have these little moments of, no, we're going to, oh, like, for example, the moral authority of the church uh, diminishing a bit at that time in relation to these facts and such. Can you speak about the transition? Did the church get reduced to nothing or what happened there? Oh, well, I mean, I suppose, so, like, I have to say, I'm not, I'm not a, a scholar of the church, so I, th there is a story there also that, that, that probably, I mean, you know, this is the rise of Protestantism and, and um, uh, religious clashes that tore apart England and the rest of Europe, and just having two different churches, of course, brought the kind of moral framework of Christianity into question in a way that it, it hadn't been previously, it still retained a pretty strong grip on, um, I would say, the, the sort of European consciousness, though. And, and even though the, uh, the authors are talking about the benefit to the nation, but, you know, I mean, when they, there, there's no room for uh, a purely secular argument. I mean, they don't make pure, you know, so God and nation are kind of the two tenets that, that come in. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, I mean, at the time, so for example, Thomas Hobbes made a, a kind of a purely secular argument about governance in the same era. And he was really um, universally reviled for that. So these merchants wouldn't sort of take that. Step. You know, he's called the monster of Malmesbury because he made that secular, <laughs> secular argument. So these merchants are not, um, they, or I would say that the, the church still has a, a significant amount and certainly the Christian ethos has a lot of uh, continued cultural relevance for sure. It's not, it's not completely gone. Um, although there are some challenges, I would agree. Now, one thing that comes to mind is you selected a specific period of time and to analyze material, which was not fully, let's say, digitized. And there's like, it was almost like if I was analyzing it, it'd be like a gold mine and reaching out for it and figuring out uh, dynamics along the way. That's cool to me. We look at like certain things and we make that uh, brighter. Is there, if it came to mind, are there any other periods that would 
make as much sense to look at in that some in that way where there was texts or would that not be the case for like 800 um ad or uh later on do you see any other time periods or frameworks that have the same kind of opening for analysis of uh, terms and discussion well, I mean, gosh, I, I, I think the medieval economy is just totally fascinating. If I could get data, for example, on the, you know, there's these small towns that, that were created after the Crusades that were kind of trade hubs. And, um, and then there's the whole expansion of the Silk Road. I mean, there's so many moments of incredibly important commercial transition and sort of different um, way. There's, I mean, all across Asia, the even earlier there's these hubs of trade um uh, in indonesia and um in the middle east that are that are so vibrant and cosmopolitan and i think that the the governments had very sophisticated ways of thinking about trade and how to how to benefit and free and you know there's a lot of sort of embrace of free trade in those different cities um the problem is is that the, it's there's just not um, records of it as far as as I know. So um, in a lot, uh, so if you're on the equator, for one thing, the paper goods don't store very well um, because huh. they don't, you don't have refrigeration, you don't have air conditioning, you don't have, so things just disintegrate. So there's not a lot of archival records um, from very, warm areas just in general which is means you just oh. don't, don't get the kind of systematic data that you need for this i mean to be honest that's one of the reasons why i think there's so much written on english history is they just became obsessed with like, taking records and writing everything down and keeping it in the archives and so it, we can get to it in a way that you can't get to a lot of other a lot of other history mm. um if the data existed, I mean, and then also, of course, there's the early modern typeset is very hard to read, but it's probably easier than an illuminated manuscript or, or you know, the different manuscripts that are created. But that I actually spent a lot of time reading logs from the English East India Company. And I'll tell you that if you read a log uh, of a ship from the, like the 16th century, it looks beautiful. Like it looks amazing. It looks, but it looks, it looks like Elven script from the Lord of the Rings or, you know, like, it's just so, it's very hard to read, very hard to read. So it looks beautiful, but it's very hard to read. Yes. Dang. <laughs> it's like for aesthetic purposes, but then as far as functionality, it's, it's low on that one. Well, it's just not quite, it's, so I think it was probably easy for the people at the time to read, but it's not, the, the letters aren't formed the same way. The language is slightly different. That It just looks like a foreign language. That makes sense. And now we're used to all these perfect fonts that everything is at the peak level of readability or serif or sans serif or every little pixel in them. Transition over time. That's kind of cool. And computers can read it. I mean, that's the other big thing is that if it's regularized, then, then the computer can convert it into data that you can analyze. But... It, that's that's I mean I think probably it'll it'll get better the methods will improve you know people are working on this problem but it's not trivial 
reading a regular text or handwriting correctly. Mm -hmm. That element is definitely not trivial because I feel like there's just chunks of material that are left alone um, for now, but maybe in the future, maybe some artificial intelligence machine learning thing will scan it. That's what I thought of a good chunk when I was uh, reading through the book that this is a specific moment. And then for current material and all the discussion that's happening right now on uh, the internet and wherever text, it's all being run through um, Google or other companies' systems to examine top trends, mini trends, partial trends, how this relates to this, what's gone up 3% in the last year as far as discussion. So exactly your material, I've, I see that we're doing like 80 million times that now through machines for the current moment. But it's uh, maybe some of the past moment is left alone because it's not the current uh, landscape of Twitter or whatever. That is so true. And I think it's such a tragedy, actually. That is so, so people focus so much on Twitter, but there's actually so much historical data out there that I think would be a lot more illuminating than just to look at Twitter, Twitter trends over and over again. You know, to be honest, I think we have bigger problems. We have problems with institutions. We have problems with democracy. We have problems with, you know, inequality and I don't see how we can get a systematic perspective on those things without looking to history to see how these big institutions um, persist and change over time. And in order to do that, you know, you, you have to sort of break out of this social media bubble that um, I think a, a lot of social scientists have kind of sort of inhabited. Uh, I mean, you know, they've done a lot of really terrific work there. So you can develop in algorithms, search methods, you know, it's like great data to develop methods. But but I think that I think it's through the methods should be applied to different contexts, so um, if possible. That's funny. It's <laughs> almost like I was talking to chemist Leroy Cronin at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, and he said, oh, it all connects back to TikTok. So even though we have all this technology, it's going back to like little clips or dance videos on TikTok, whereas, right, what you're saying, maybe applying it to uh, decades and decades or centuries of thought and philosophy might be more applicable than uh, making it to uh, cause someone to have their attention maintained on a three-second clip more, like 2% more. We must keep their attention. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. We can't click away. Now, Actually, on that one, I used to check this sometimes, but of the various social media and ways to consume and take in media, is there any you prefer to take in media or make media on? Oh, um, uh, gosh, I probably like Instagram best, I think, you know, of the social media. I mean, I, I'm on Twitter, but, you know, I have to say, I feel like Twitter just people just complain on Twitter. Like Twitter is the place where no one else will listen to what you want to say. So you say it on Twitter. <laughs> it seems like to me, like, you know, um, so I'm not, I don't know. I, I can't say I actually enjoy Twitter, but I, but Instagram is kind of fun seeing pictures. That makes sense. Now a counter to that is the level of focus, let's say that it takes to get all the data and whatnot together is something that is attention requiring. And so that, I always see puts people into a very specific space that not many can get into. 
how have you gotten yourself into focus spaces to do that kind of research? Uh, oh, so uh, do you mean the data cleaning process? <laughs> well, that and like analysis of it and then uh, yeah. putting it together for a message for all. It is. Well, it's, it's true. I mean, I would say, you know, cleaning data, finding data is pretty exciting. Cleaning data and making sure that you can analyze it can, is probably the most painful part of these kinds of projects. Like cleaning data, I, I don't know anyone that thinks cleaning data is that much fun. But um, you do get to know the, the data set better. If you clean it yourself, you really get to know it and develop a sort of intuitive feel for, for what's there and what you might get out of it. Um, it, you do have to be just uh, sort of, you know, dedicated in order to, to get through that stage, I think. But, but then you have the joy and the pleasure of, I mean, running analysis is so much fun. By the time you clean the data, then you just almost, you know, you just type in a line and you can get a result. <laughs> and, and it's, it's so much fun to look at the visualizations and then, I mean, that's the great thing about doing data analysis, of course, is also it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it, it surprises you. It tells you things that you didn't know before. Um, and it leads you down paths of, of sort of exploration and discovery that, that you wouldn't have been able to get from just reading a couple of different texts. Um, so that part's, a, I think, a pleasure. And, and really the, the collation and, the, um, and all the... Uh, the cleaning is is sort of it's for that benefit because you're looking forward to that moment where you actually get to kind of explore um so you do i guess you have to be a very prudent person right prudent i always i learned that prudent is when you're you're more focused on the future than on the present is that a more specific form of prudent probably then yes i think i think it, i think that's the more specific definition yeah so you have to be thinking the kind of person who like saves the best part of the dessert for last. <laughs> this is a key one. I've mentioned this a few times, the, the value of that, the Stanford marshmallow experiment where the yeah. kids held on and waited for two marshmallows versus taking the one 20 years, 30 years later, whatever, they were more successful because that simple delayed gratification meant that they could do that across the board in their decision-making, their plans, their finances, their dealings with people. It wouldn't undercut people very quickly, more like they'd have a collaborative effort with them. So that's pretty substantial. And it's like a simple, I like that they broke it into a simple experiment showing that a long-term view, it almost, uh, every, I sometimes think that the world agrees with our thoughts. So if we have a long-term view, then we are good in the long-term. We're like, it, 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 it matches us. And we have a short-term view, it's good in the short-term. So. It's almost like the earth matches directly what we plan for or set up for it and then not beyond that. So as far as we plan out, but then if we don't plan out uh, more than five years, after five years, things might break down because we, we didn't really set a foundation for that. That's pretty good. Now, one thing that comes to mind is you're at Yale University. Is there any specifics that uh, Yale separated itself from other universities that you went there or... Is there any things that while you have been there come to mind as uh, very suitable for what you do? Well, it's so funny. So one of the things that's kind of interesting about Yale is that Elihu Yale, the, the founder of Yale, he was actually a, a private trader in the, in the East Indies. So he was, he, was in, he was one of these merchants 
that he made a lot of money on the diamond trade, in fact. Um, but so he he was one of these merchants that was part participating in the discourse. Now he wasn't an author, an author of one of these early economic texts that I focus on, but he was definitely part and parcel of this kind of world and this transformational kind of class of merchants that that really did produce a lot of change. Um, not not only in England and um, in North America, but around the world. So um, you know, and the good and bad came out of that. Um, certainly, but uh, but but Yale, the institution, I think, is a, a really terrific thing that came out of it. Um, and there's not only this um, kind of historical connection to these these companies, and and in particular the East Indies trade, but there's a, actually a really high concentration of people that work on the company. So I have some incredible colleagues. Um, Julia Adams in my um, department, Douglas Rogers in anthropology. Uh, I'm going to forget, but there's it's it's a pretty amazingly high concentration of people that work on in, on this area, um, and it also has just a truly incredible history department. So that's that's nice. Um, uh, so it's in terms of my interests, I have a, a terrific kind of intellectual community to engage with on these specific circumstances. And then just more broadly, it's, it's a, it's a very, um, it's a, not only an extremely collegial and supportive group of scholars, I would say it's also a very inspiring group of people to be in conversation with. So it's a nice, a nice place. It's nice to have an intellectual community to connect with. Yes. That's a cool feature. What is one message you would want people to take away from the book or their understanding of that specific company or of discourse or your analysis? Well, I, I think the most important thing is that, um, so let's focus on national development and growth. Um, I think it created uh, a lot of things that were, very positive. We know much more about economic theory now, I would say, because of this turn, turn towards sort of scientific logic, rigor, um, uh, trade data, statistics, empirical analysis. But um, but it, I don't think it was necessary, it was just kind of historical circumstances to turn away from a sort of a moral perspective of how capitalism can and should unfold in society. And so I think hopefully the most important lesson that I hope people will take away from this is that that's historically contingent. And if it's historically contingent and it has to do with specific political and institutional, um, the polit political and institutional context of the 17th century, then it's not written in stone in in capitalism in any meaningful way and that you know we can embrace a more um moral and ethical way of thinking about commerce and exchange with other people so i, I suppose the idea of writing about the the history of this is kind of to hopefully loosen a little bit the grip of this idea that you have to be um sort of certainly that you have to be nationalistic about how you think about um, trade and development and growth and commerce and um, economics. Uh, but even more so that I, I think the best of both worlds would be to keep the logic and the rigor and the data um, and 
you sort of re-import a little bit more of the kind of concerns for equity and fair exchange that were left by the wayside. And I think that's possible. Um, and that hopefully this book would help with that process. This is a great point. If something was put into place with a lot of effort, maybe it didn't fully have a natural base to it. And maybe the all original way had some relevance for uh, natural functioning. This is a great point. Professor Emily Erickson of Yale University, I would like to thank you for having been on this episode of the show and informing all of us. Thank you, Armin. It was a great pleasure to, uh, to meet you and it was a really fun to have this conversation. Glad to. And we are out.